You're listening to the seventh episode of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. A lot of this is about fundamentalist Christianity going wrong, but it is not an attack on faith. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, The Story of Peter Gray. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 7, The Romantic Song. You would think that when a person is depressed much of the time, suddenly losing a job or a pet or a relationship would stack on top, making an experience of sadness unimaginable to people for whom the upset and despondent grief is not something they're already dealing with on a daily or weekly basis. You would think sad things happening to depressed people would make them twice as sad as normal people. Here's the odd thing. In my case anyway, a giant part of the experience of being depressed was a horror a fear, a confusion and shame as to why exactly I was feeling the way I was feeling. I couldn't easily explain why I felt that way to someone who wanted to know. Why are you depressed? Was a simple question I had no simple answer to. Now the comment by my father suggesting that I had nothing to be depressed about really needs to be addressed. He was profoundly depressed despite medication, and if you asked him why, he had quite a story to tell. Something very traumatic, especially for someone who lives in fear of the disapproval, judgment, and rejection of others, had happened to him. His worst nightmare had completely come true, and now he was very sad and upset. The end. When I felt the crushing stony weight of chilly despair weighing down on me when I was trying to get up in the morning to go to school or church or a teenage job, I could come up with things about those situations that might be used to explain how I felt things that had happened in the past, things that were ongoing, things that were possibly going to happen down the road, things that were facts about the past now, things that were conjecture and paranoia about the present, and things that were empty worry and dread about the future. But the fact is, deep down, I knew that nothing of that kind, nothing external to me, explained the severity of my feelings when I felt dead and didn't know why. You see, it wasn't just one thing. It wasn't just internal and it wasn't just external. It wasn't just that the chemicals in my brain were all out of whack and I needed my fluids topped up. It wasn't just that I maybe had a fairly depressing life to live each week with bullies, cliques, snobs, and dubious authority figures at both school and church, and by that point, depressing teenage jobs with teenage drama as well. It wasn't just that I had unresolved stuff from my past that needed to be examined and talked through. It wasn't just that my family carried depressive tendencies in our genes from both sides of the family, or just that our house was a pretty depressing place most of the time. It was all of that, and who knew what else more. It felt very like all of that was inadequate to explain the feelings, though. The feelings were troublingly disproportionate to any reason one could try to inflate to the size necessary to explain them. Depression generally isn't about something. If you have a reason to feel sad then feeling sad isn't unusual or a clinical problem like depression. In my case anyway, the more nothing was in my day, the more depressing that nothing might get. There was nothing nearly so depressing most days as a good heavy dose of unrelenting nothing. When something, something bad happened, it wasn't just more nothing. When pets died or relationships didn't quite get off the ground, it felt very different. Then I knew exactly why I was feeling how I felt and could and did tell anyone who might have wondered. And there was more of a sharp, shocking stab to that kind of sorrow, a fresh woundedness. Getting up on a normal day, though, when nothing of that was going on, but still feeling like I was being slowly, inexorably crushed under a weight of existential doom, 
of feeling mostly dead already, was both a very familiar and more of a numb, dead feeling. It happened all the time, and there was no real reason I could give for it. It might be that there were limits to how much sorrow and despair a teenage heart could feel. Maybe I was already maxing those out frequently when there was little reason for them. Maybe when something truly upsetting happened, it was a real change of pace, kind of the opposite to the nothing. Maybe it even distracted me from and paused the -the run-of-the-mill despair and suicidal ideation, making it give way for a shocking and unexpected wave of experiences which were easier to explain to someone. Where the one was like numbing death, the other was like a slap in the face. They didn't feel the same at all. Mundane, depressive episodes like I went through in my late teens were like being buried and crushed to death. Waking up that way too. Falling asleep that way. Falling into unconsciousness and slipping away from those horrible feelings. Having occasional respite from it. And knowing there was a mysterious ebb and flow to it I had no control over. Kind of like being bipolar, but with kind of normal being your high point. Terrifyingly familiar and permanent dark feelings. Not being able to even discern good or nice things as they happened around you. Like the depression was a normal part of you. Like you generated it yourself. Like nothing was wrong with the world, but it was killing you anyway to live in it. And feeling almost too tired and depressed to care if you lived or died. But having a girl reveal she'd changed her mind about wanting to know you better, or pushing your feet to the foot of the bed and remembering that no, now they would never again be disturbing a sleeping 100-pound German shepherd who thought you were the most important and wonderful, endlessly exciting and interesting being on the planet, having your grandmother unexpectedly die. For weeks after something like that, I walked around like someone in shock with a sword jutting out of my stomach. It was the difference between nothing's wrong really, so why is everything so horrible, and How will I ever deal with this horrible thing that definitely just happened and lots of other people are deeply upset about it too? I have it on good authority from YouTube that one of the very last cognitive functions that develop in the young adult, very post-adolescent person, is the part of the brain toward the front that provides one with a sense of proportion. So, it is very possible that when teens get grounded or get yelled at by a parent or embarrassed at school by a bully or purposely ignored by a love interest, that they lack the part of the frontal cortex which keeps them from toning the emotional response down to a level significantly different from if a parent died or they lost their job or got divorced or sentenced to prison or fired or something. Maybe their blood tells them that exactly the same sort of thing, a really bad thing, is happening, and so it is the time for bad feelings to flood that blood. Maybe the brain doesn't have the myelin to know different yet. Maybe teenage brains have sad, on more of an on-off switch than on a dial that can be turned up and down. I think of this at the high school where I teach, when 17-year-old girls get texts and burst into half an hour or so of panicked, heart-wrenching sobs requiring them to flee the classroom with two winged girls to escort her in for a safe landing in a washroom or stairwell. I realize there is no point expecting those three to finish any work for an hour or so. I note that even girls who don't like another girl at all will generally still pursue her out into the hall if no one else will to make sure she's all right. In the same way, they might tell her she's very brave to have made that dubious haircut choice and that she's totally rocking it. I note that guys who leave the room crying generally don't want an escort and never ever get one. Everyone knows better. I think women are just much better at building ad hoc social structures instantly in any emotions crisis. And I think they make the interesting choice of prioritizing safety over saving face. Odd. Guys know it's okay for us to cry now, even guys descended from British stock, 
We just want privacy while we're doing it. I'm sure a man doesn't have to be Louis C.K. to rather someone walk in on him purging the port plasma injector, so to speak, than crying. But guys generally don't let anyone see them do it when they cry. I, of course, have taken Wing Chun Kung Fu and only cry with my fists now. By the time I wrote a song about that oh-so-special breakup feeling, I'd been through a small series of abortive relationship attempts that passed by in the blink of an eye without ever really getting started at all. And I had, as seen in the song, cultivated that unearned jadedness about romance, the sort of thing you even hear nowadays from 12 and 13-year-olds who feel they somehow have an extensive romantic history and are now worn out and jaded about romance in general. It's really off-putting to hear 12-year-old girls talking about their past relationships like they're middle-aged Hollywood actresses. For me, most of my brethren relationship attempts involved meeting brethren girls from out of province or even country, having a brief flirty conversation or two at a Bible conference or youth camp, exchanging mailing addresses, forming carefully crafted entertaining letters, and having none come back, and a cold shoulder at the next Bible conference or youth camp, as if it was me who was doing something hurtful. I never knew if it was the letters, 2020 hindsight, girls getting spoken to and informed about me and or my family by mothers, sisters, cousins, and aunts, or what it was. I just knew that it was like Charlie Brown launching kite after kite after kite and immediately having each one get torn from his grasp by the same old tree, or being convinced by Lucy Van Pelt over and over and over again to take another kick at that football promising each time that she'd never again yank it away to watch him fall dramatically on his ass, then wham! Good grief. From a very young age, I felt far too much identification with Charlie Brown, him and Eeyore. I composed the most jaded lines into a poem, song, lyric, and as usual, it was pushed far enough over the top. Parts of it have made people laugh, which is part of what I was up to. In my late 20s, I had a brief, abortive, and terribly expensive experiment with recording in a hole-in-the-wall recording studio in the city for a couple of pricey years, with its two 90s Alesis 8-at machines and a modest collection of mics. I was confused, then pleased when as the machines were rolling, I, in the gray foam squares lined with more gray foam squares lined booth, with a click track ringing in my headphones, had started earnestly into the second verse of the song. The two younger engineers, hearing the words Puppy loves when she's a bitch to you for the first time, ducked under the console and sat on the floor to hide how funny this had struck them, lest I see through the glass and be distracted from trying to get a hit single-ready performance down on ADAT encoded Super VHS tapes. Why not howl like a dog or a wolf? Trying to make several tracks of that also harmonize with the chords of the song when I sing that canine-themed line, I thought to myself. Made perfect sense to me. Would be funny, but also cool to pull off, and also fit with the lyrics, adding a bit more lightheartedness to the nihilism. Puppy loves when she's a bitch to you. The sound engineers were confused when what I had in mind was explained. Once I did it, they got it. When Mindy was in doing the meatloaf-style girl end of the bridge in the previous song, I also had her do some work on this one. She stuck to my lockstep close harmony on one take for the most part.
But Mindy is jazzed to the core and hates that kind of thing, and did more of her own sort of thing, too. Listening to it, I can hear that this part was imported into Vegas and someone put a reverb on it permanently instead of just letting that digital effect be turned on or off in future at will to the original track. Someone who hadn't yet learned the difference between destructive and non-destructive effects. Which means I'm stuck with this reverb now because its zeros and ones are inextricably intermingled with those that represent Mindy's clean original performance at Studio B in the 90s. The data has been changed. This is one of those songs that when I go over the raw tracks now, in an old version of Sony's Vegas, before exporting them to Pro Tools to remix with more modern effects, makes me aware of just how many parts I started throwing at recordings to see how emotive they could get, how much sweetening to toss in. Always more tempting for simple little songs, basically two-chord symphonies you fear are boring. The real task now is adding some little things to glue some of the different bits together, while also cutting parts of instrument parts out of various parts of the song, where it might be cool if they just stepped out and took a break for a verse here or a chorus there, just to give you a rest. In my hard drive, there are the original tracks from the ADATs done at Studio B, the original little recording studio in Ottawa with Chris and Mike, the engineers. And then there are tracks with new drums, definitely done in Ottawa at Raven Street Studios. That was another cozy little place, but with a much better everything than Studio B, apart from staff. And we knew young local musician Brendan Flynn had recently gone to school at Raven Street Studios' affiliated recording school to learn how to engineer. We recorded new, more rocked-out drums for the song to contrast with a soft vocal, Chris Medcalf, a guy I was briefly in bands with at the time, playing them. Chris loved country and made us all go see Merle Haggard when the senior citizen toured through here, as Chris knew Haggard wouldn't be on this earth many years longer. Chris's drumming owed more to Lars Ulrich of Metallica, however, another favorite of his. We knew Brendan from the Celtic Cross Pub in Almont, where he hosted an open stage with Adam Puddington Tuesday nights, so we were impressed to see him running the big board in the middle of the studio. I was still using those used ADAT tapes from Studio B, and I found some anonymously recorded techno at the end of this song's parts, and though I didn't choose to leave it in, I kept some. That's definitely from Studio B. And then there's stuff that was definitely recorded at home in the early aughts into Vegas on my Windows XP computer with my one good microphone. At first, I just had the Studio B 8-at tapes and no machine to play them on, and some rough mixes on cassette tape grabbed before Studio B went out of business. I went for more than five years before I did some work at Raven Street and heard all of my songs again, and it became practical at that point also to pay James Law, a guy with both 8-at tapes and a computer in the bedroom of his apartment, to put these Studio ADAT files into my hard drive so I could finally have them to work on in my computer at home without paying studio time. Was that a double kick pedal? Jimmy Law asked me as we previewed the tracks. Yes, I exclaimed, excited to have a bit of metal in a song done this style. Unfortunate. 
Jimmy Law declared, and started recording it into his computer anyway. When I was laid off with everyone else from Nortel Networks in Ottawa when the high-tech bubble burst around 2000, I used my severance pay to buy an AKG C2000 mic. Back in the day, I had once rented an AKG 414 like the one I'm recording this into right now, and I knew that some pros used them sometimes for some things, so they were pro gear. Not a Neumann or anything, but still. All of my former microphones had been passive ones for under $100, and this rented, phantom-powered, active 414 had made its point to me when plugging it in, with the knobs still turned up appropriately for the $60 Audio-Technica Midnight Blue microphone, the levels coming in the 414 were so hot that when I put my headphones on, I was deafened by an enormous crunching sound. At first I thought the wall was falling in. It turned out that the cat was eating some kibble a few steps from the mic and it was picking up. Would you like your snack? I was absolutely sold on that mic right then, before I recorded a note with it, and when I got a couple of hundred dollars because I'd lost my job instead of saving it for the period of unemployment that seemed like it might be stretched out in front of me, I characteristically bought the AKG C2000, the little brother of that rented 414 mic, which C2000 cost about a quarter of what the 414 did, and so it was within my reach. I recall remembering years later that Chris Paisley, a guy I'd been working with when we all got laid off, had mentioned playing harmonica. So I had the former co-worker from Nortel bring his harmonicas over to my apartment in Almont and play one into the Nortel Severance Package microphone along with the tracks grabbed from these old Studio B ADATs. I had an 80s Korg keyboard borrowed from Michael Vetter in New York, and I put down parts. And parts. And parts. Parts and parts and parts. There sure is a lot of cable noise and hum in there. And then there is a large assortment of stuff in these files that I have no idea if it was recorded in a studio at all, and if so, which of the two, or at home. My sister was probably recorded at home once she was back from living in Japan for a few years.
I would have sung to her parts in my apartment, probably singing the harmonies first to point her at them. Adam Cavanaugh was a tall, arty bassist who played in most of the same bands as drummer Chris Medcalf and had a hobby of collecting empty bottles. He objected to bum 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 bass parts on principle. Adam was likely recorded in my living room in Almont, sitting on a stool, playing his black five-string direct in to my computer. Our friend and bandmate Troy was probably recorded in the same place, perhaps even on the same day, having been asked to play or choosing to play himself, I don't remember, like Robert Smith of The Cure. And to play David Gilmore's slide guitar from very early Pink Floyd. As to my various guitar parts, I have no idea which of them might have been recorded in Studio B for a certainty, but probably this one. And who knows, with... Trumpet parts were probably recorded at home. I would have recorded acoustic guitar for the bed track in Studio B, that mic picking up lots of vocals as I sang too. Yamaha 12 string, I would have borrowed it and replaced the original acoustic mic track with that, played with my thumb instead of a pick to give it a softer sound. I remember that no sooner had Bill bought this used 12 string guitar than he'd let it tip over onto a hard floor, cracking the nylon nut near its head and making it no longer have a groove to hold the second high E string in place anymore. Naturally, I was excited at the prospect of going into the music store, asking confidently for a replacement 12-string nut and fixing Bill's guitar. I would have felt like a luthier. Bill, being Bill, said he liked it better that way and refused to ever get it fixed. Very punk sensibilities had Bill. I can tell you, though, that I replaced the Studio B bed track's six-string acoustic in my living room with what we called Bill's 11-string because it had 11 strings instead of 12. 
Like most folks from back in the day, Bill's not in contact with me anymore, and his 11-string is probably with him in Boston, where he moved with his charming wife, Rochelle, who gave me a Babylon 5 action figure one time. So I have no source for borrowing a 12-string anymore, nor have ever pulled the trigger on buying one myself just for those songs in which I want my acoustic guitar to sound a bit more shimmery. Nowadays, I use a Nashville-tuned spare acoustic guitar for that. More on that in subsequent podcasts when it becomes relevant. I remember being very enamored of the idea of pulling in samples from movies, the rights to which I did not and continue to not own. These were pulled off VHS tapes and pulled into the big studio desk onto ADAT. This one was something from Beetlejuice, from when I sang the word bitch. <laughs> Nobody says the B word, come on. And there's also genuine wolves at the end, destructively mixed in with the voice of Joss Ackland playing C.S. Lewis in the BBC movie Shadowlands about the life of C.S. Lewis, who was my first non-Plymouth Brethren Christian theologian I felt emboldened to read. Doesn't seem fair, does it? If you want the love, you have to have the pain. Taking a leaf from the well-worn pages of Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here, the song, not the album, and Joe Satriani's Surfing with the Alien, again, the song, not the album, alike, I had my own go back in the day at creating the illusion that my song was some dusty, old, musty thing from the past, showing up on an obscure AM channel on a poorly tuned radio just barely getting through. By this point, I'm finding it quite therapeutic to go through these musty old music files and layer in vocal harmonies designed to try to tie together things like my sister's soft, murmury backing vocals and Mindy's sharp, ringing ones. Interestingly, these files also contain something I would have recorded at home on the $60 Audio-Technica Midnight Blue. The reason I know this is because it was recorded while I still worked at Nortel Networks and wouldn't have had that magic severance package to buy the better mic yet. What happened was either floor technician Grant Winnemore had told me that when one touched metal objects to a block of solid dry ice, a sudden cooling briefly made little shrieking, squeaking, squealing sounds that were often recorded and used to make monster sounds in movies. Not everyone is D. Bradley Baker and can make those sounds themselves with their face. It is also possible that I used the still a fairly new thing internet we were all enjoying at work and found this out myself and told Grant, but in either case, he said he could get me some dry ice because they were using some that day for who knows what. So Grant waited until it was my leaving time and handed me a styrofoam soup bowl with a piece of steaming dry ice bigger than my fist in it. It was hard to even find a way to hold the bowl without freezing the skin off your hands by having the dry ice roll against the edge of the bowl too near where you were holding it, or just have the dry ice roll out onto the ground. I think it was in the heat of summer, too. 
I was pretty sure I wasn't supposed to have a lump of dry ice, pretty sure I wasn't likely to have any more anytime soon, pretty sure it might entirely dissolve into all that downpouring mysterious steam in my sweltering car before I got home, so I put the bowl on the dash, drove fast, and hoped for the best. I also hoped the dry ice wouldn't roll off the dash straight into my lap. Well, it didn't. And by the time I got home after a tense half-hour drive, I got out basically anything made of metal that might make a sound when it touched the dry ice, which was now a bit smaller than my fist and still shrinking. I set up the cheap mic and touched it directly to the various metal things as I rubbed the dry ice with a teaspoon. Stuff like that. Well, that sounded like it might be useful to represent what love does to a young man seeing middle age coming over the horizon, all right. Tell to you. 
Zombie. 